Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. This morning I want to begin with chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. Now Korach, son of Itzach, son of Kohat, son of Levi, betook himself along with Dathan and Abiram, son of Eliab, own son of Pelet, descendants of Reuben, to rise up against Moses together with 250 Israelites, chieftains of the community, chosen in the assembly, men of repute. They combined against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all the community are holy, all of them, and the Lord is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourselves above the Lord's congregation? When Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Then he spoke to Korach and all his company, saying, Come morning, and God will make known who is his and who is holy, and will grant him access to himself. He will grant access to the one he has chosen. Do this, you Korach, and all your band. Take firepans. And tomorrow put fire in them and lay incense on them before God. Then the man whom God chooses, he shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Moses said further to Korach, Hear me, sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel? and giving you access to God, to perform the duties of God's tabernacle, and to minister to the community and serve them. Now that he has advanced you, and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? Truly it is against God that you and your company have banded together. For who is Aaron, my brother, that you shall rail against him? Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come. It is not enough that you have brought us from the land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, that you would also lord it over us. Even if you had brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey, given us possession of fields and vineyards, should you gouge out those men's eyes, we will not come. Moses was much aggrieved, and he said to God, Pay no attention to their oblation. I have not taken the ass of any of them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses then said to Korach, Tomorrow you and all your company appear before God, and you and they and Aaron. Each of you take his firepan and lay incense on it. Each of you bring his firepan before God, 250 firepans. You and Aaron also bring your firepans. Each of them took his firepan, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and took his place at the entrance of the tent of meeting, as did Moses and Aaron. Korach gathered the whole community against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
Then the presence of God appeared to the holy community and said, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Stand back from this community that I may annihilate them in an instant. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, source of the breath of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be wrathful with the whole community? God said to Moses, Speak to the community and say, Withdraw from about the abodes of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, the elders of Israel following him. He addressed the community, saying, Move away from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be wiped out for all their sins. So they withdrew from the abodes of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Now Dathim and Abiram had come out and stood at the entrance of their tents with their wives and their children and even their little ones. And Moses said, But this you shall know, that it was God who sent me to do all these things, that they are not of my own devising. If these men die as all men do, if their lot be the common fate of all mankind, it was not God who sent me. But if God brings about something I've heard of, so that the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, you shall know that these men have spurned God. Scarcely had Moses finished speaking all these words when the ground under them burst asunder, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household all Korok's people and all their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them and they vanished from the midst of the congregation. All Israel around them fled at their shrieks for they said, the earth might swallow us. And the fire went forth from God and consumed the 250 men offering the incense a story in the book of Numbers, a powerful story. And this morning I want to chat with you about two different means of interpreting the story from the Torah. Interpretation is an essential part of Jewish understanding of Torah. It helps us make Torah powerful and ever-living in each generations. And there are two particular ways that we can interpret Torah. One is called exegesis, and the other is hermeneutics. Exegesis is the interpretation of a biblical text by way of a thorough analysis of its content in order to clarify its meaning. The main task of exegesis is to discover the original intended meaning of a given text through careful and systematic study. It is the process of examining a text to ascertain what its first readers might have understood it to mean. Now, based on that, it would be impossible but to agree with scholars who say that exegesis is an effort of reaching back into history to the original author and audience. 
To do a successful exegesis, therefore, a person needs to apply grammatical, lexicographical, and structural tools to discover the author's original intended meaning in a given text. Thus, one must have a good translation, a good biblical dictionary, and good commentaries in order to do a good exegesical job. The most important thing a person should do in exegesis is to determine the original message of the author in order to understand the word of God for our modern context. That is to say, we must first understand the word of God in its ancient context. Hermeneutics, on the other hand, is defined as the study of the locus of meaning and the principles of interpretation. It is concerned with the philosophy and science of interpretation. Hermeneutics is a type of discernment process in which we mine the text. We explore what is endless and beyond our ability to comprehend so that there is some practical use of hermeneutics in order to live it. Like other forms of discernment, hermeneutics is a task that is best not done alone. So biblical hermeneutics deals with the philosophy and science of interpreting the biblical text using the tools of today. The distinction between exegesis and hermeneutics is a thin line. While exegesis is the act of drawing the meaning out of a biblical text, hermeneutics studies the locus of meaning and the principles of biblical interpretation. But hermeneutics not only attempts to understand the passage in its ancient context, but also implies, employs models for applying the biblical passage to a modern context. The focus of exegesis is the text. The focus of hermeneutics is what does it mean to us today. So now, with that introduction, and with the story of Korach foremost in your mind, front and center, I want to offer you two different interpretations from the Jewish world of the story of Korach. The first is a synthesis of words from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs was the former chief rabbi of the British Isles and now is a well-known um, writer and book and author and spokesperson for uh, an orthodox perspective of Judaism. So he begins his interpretation, and you, the listener, try and understand, make for yourself a determination of whether this is exegesis or this is hermeneutics. The Korach Rebellion was not just the worst of the revolts from the wilderness years. It was also different in kind because it was a direct assault on Moses and Aaron. You will remember that there are many different uh, revolts in the wilderness about lack of food and take us back to Egypt, 
Um, and even the golden calf should be understood as a revolt. Korach and his fellow rebels, in essence, accused Moses of nepotism, of failure, and above all, of being a fraud, of attributing to God decisions and laws that Moses had devised himself for his own ends. So grave was the attack that it became for the ancient rabbinic sages a paradigm of the worst kind of disagreement. The rabbis wrote in Mishnah Avot, what is an argument for the sake of heaven? The argument between Hillel and Shammai, which is the argument not for the sake of heaven, the argument of Korach and his company, Menachem Me'eri, a 13th and 14th century Spanish commentator, explains the Mishnah in the following way. What is the meaning of the phrase, the argument between Hillel and Shammai? In their debates, one of them would render a decision and the other would argue against it out of desire to discover the truth, not out of cantankerousness or a wish to prevail over his fellow. An argument for the sake of heaven was that, not for the sake of heaven, was that of Korach and his company. For they came to undermine Moses, our master, may he rest in peace, and his position out of envy and contentiousness and ambition for victory. The sages, as you can tell, were drawing a fundamental distinction between two kinds of conflict. Argument for the sake of truth an argument for the sake of victory. The passage must be read this way because the glaring discrepancy between what the rebels said and what they sought. What they said was the people did not need leaders, that the people were all holy. They had heard the word of God in Numbers 16, Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Yet from Moses' reply, it is clear that he had heard something altogether different behind their words. Moses said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of God's tabernacle? and to stand before the community and minister to them. God has brought you and all your fellow Levites closer to him, but now you are trying to get the priesthood understand as the high priesthood too. It's not that they wanted a community without leaders. Is not the whole community holy, they said. It is rather that they wanted to be the high priests, the leaders. The rebels' rhetoric had nothing to do with pursuit of truth and everything to do with the pursuit of honor, status, and as they saw it, power. They wanted not to learn, but to win. They sought not verity, but victory. We can trace the impact of this in terms of the sequence of events that followed. First, Moses proposed a simple test. 
let the rebels bring an offering of incense the next day, and God would show whether he accepted or rejected their offering. This is, as you would understand, a rational response, since what was at issue was what God wanted. Therefore, Moses suggested, let God decide. It was a controlled experiment, an empirical test. God would let the people know the entirety of the people and in an unambiguous way who was right. It would establish once and for all God's truth as to who would be the high priest. But Moses did not stop there, as he would have done if truth was the only issue involved. As we saw in the quote that I'd shared with you from number 16, verse 8, Moses tried to argue Korach out of his dissent, not by addressing his argument, but by speaking to the resentment that lay behind it, he told them that he had been given a position of honor. He may not have been the high priest, but he was a Levite. And the Levites had special sacred status shared not by other tribes. He was telling him to be satisfied with the honor he had and not let his ambition overreach itself. He then turned to Datam and Aviram, the Reubenites, who appeared earlier in the book of Numbers in a rebellious way. Given the chance, he would have said something different to them since the source of their discontent was different from that of Korach. But they refused to meet with him altogether. Another sign that they were not interested in the truth. They had rebelled out of profound sense of the slight that the tribe of Reuben Jacob's firstborn son seemed to have been left out altogether from the allocation of honors associated with the temple sacrificial cult. At this point, the confrontation in the text becomes yet more intense. For the one and only time in the biblical epic, Moses staked his leadership on the occurrence of a miracle. Number 16, 28. Then Moses said, By this you shall know that it was the Lord who sent me to do all these things, that they were not of my own devising. But if these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then God has not sent me. But if the God brings something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the grave, then you shall know that these men have treated God with contempt. And no sooner had he finished speaking than the text tells us in verse 32, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. The rebels went alive into the grave. One cannot imagine a more dramatic vindication. God had shown beyond possibility of doubt that Moses was right and the rebels were wrong. Yet this did not end the argument. This is what is extraordinary. Far from being apologetic and repentant, the people returned the next morning still complaining, this time not about who should lead them, but about the way Moses had chosen to end the dispute. Verse chapter 17, verse 6. The next day, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron, 
They said, you have killed God's people. You may be right, they implied, and but Korach may be wrong. But is this the way to win an argument? To cause your opponents to be swallowed up alive? This time, the text tells us that God suggested an entirely different manner of resolving this dispute. He told Moses to have each of the tribes take a staff and write their name on it and place them in the tent of meeting, Ohal Ha'edut. On the staff of the tribe of Levi, he should write the name of Aaron. On the staff, one of the staffs would sprout, sprout flowers. And that would signal whom God had chosen. The tribes did so, and the next morning they were fine, returned to find that Aaron's staff had budded, blossomed, and returned almonds overnight. That second miracle by God finally ended the argument. What resolved the dispute in this biblical text, in other words, was not a show of power, but something all too different together. We cannot be sure because the text does not spell this out, but the fact that Aaron's rod produced almond blossoms seems to have rich symbolism. In the Near East, the almond is the first tree to blossom, its white flowers signaling the end of winter and the emergence of new life. In his first prophetic vision, Jeremiah saw a branch of an almond tree, a shaked, and was told by God that this was the sign that he, God, was watching the Hebrew there as shoked, to see that his word was fulfilled, Jeremiah 1, verses 11 and 12. The almond flowers recalled the gold flowers on the menorah, as discussed in Exodus 25, little literally daily by Aaron in the sanctuary. The word seats used in the book of Numbers to mean blossom recalls the seats. The frontlet of pure gold worn as part of Aaron's headdress and which were inscribed the words holy to God. The sprouting almond branch was therefore more than a sign. It was a multi-faced symbol of light, life, holiness, and the watchful presence of God. One could almost say that the almond branch symbolized the priestly will to life as against the rebel's will to power. The priest does not rule the people. He blesses them. He is the conduit through which God's life-giving energies flow. He connects the nation to the divine presence. Moses answered Korach in Korach's terms by a show of force. God answered in a quite different way, showing that leadership is not self-assurfin, but self-effacement. What the entire episode shows is the destructive nature of an argument not for the sake of heaven. That is argument for the sake of victory. In such a conflict, what is at stake is not truth, but power. And the result is that both sides suffer. If you win, I lose. But if I win, I also lose. Because in diminishing you, I diminish myself. Even a Moses is brought down low, laying himself open to the charge by others. You have killed the Lord's people. 
The biblical text seems to be telling us that argument for the sake of power is a lose-lose scenario. Of course, according to the ancient rabbis, the opposite is the case when the argument is for the sake of truth. If I win, I win. But if I lose, I also win. Because being defeated by truth is the only form of defeat that is also a victory. In a famous passage, the Talmud explains why Jewish law tend to follow the view of school of Hillel rather than their famous opponents, the school of Shammai. The Talmud tells us the law is in accord with the school of Hillel because they were kindly and modest, because they studied not only their own rulings, but also those of the school of Shammai, because they taught the words of the school of Shammai before their own. They sought truth, not victory. That is why they listened to the views of their opponents and indeed taught them that before they taught their own traditions. In the eloquent words of a contemporary scientist, Timothy Ferris, all who generally seek to learn, whether atheist or believer, scientist or mystic, are united in having not a faith, but faith itself. Its token is reverence, its habit to respect the eloquence of silence. For God's hand may be a human hand, and if you reach out in loving kindness, and God's voice is your voice, if you but speak the truth, said Ferris. Judaism has sometimes been called a cultural of argument. It is the only religious literature known whose key texts, the Torah, the Midrash, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the codes of Jewish law and the compendium of biblical interpretation are anthologies of arguments. <coughs> that is the glory of Judaism. The divine presence is not found in this voice against that, but in the totality of the conversation. In an argument for the sake of truth, both sides win, for each is willing to listen to the views of its opponent and is thereby enlarged. In arguments as the collective pursue truth, the participants use reason, logic, shared text, and shared reverence for text. They do not use ad hominem arguments, abuse, contempt, or disingenuous appeals to emotion. Each is willing, if refuted, to say I was wrong. There is no triumphalism in victory, no anger or anguish in defeat. The story of Korach reminds us of the classic example of how argument can be dishonored. Argument for the sake of heaven is one of Judaism's noble ideals. Conflict resolution by honoring both sides and employing humility in the pursuit of truth. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten asking you if this is hermeneutics or exegesis. You can listen to a rebroadcast of this morning's show on a, as a podcast on iTunes or on the CHRI website. Shalom and good morning. Behold.